Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Dan Forrest. Dan is an accomplished composer with music spanning a wide spectrum of genres and difficulties from major works for chorus and orchestra and significant choral repertoire to more accessible works for church and community choirs. He's received the ASCAP Morton Gold Young Composers Award and ACDA Raymond Brock Award, a Meet the Composers grant, among others. He is the current chair of the National ACDA Composition Initiatives Committee, and his most recent major work, The Breath of Life, was premiered by the Bel Canto Company and is newly in print summer 2020. Dan Forrest, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Absolutely. Glad to join you, Steve. So I read that you received your doctorate in composition from the University of Kansas. So where did you do your master's and undergraduate degrees? Those are uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, where I currently live. Uh, those were both at Bob Jones University. Uh, okay. Piano performance, bachelor's and master's. And did you go there because you were interested in the faculty teaching there or what took you to South Carolina? Um, yeah, I grew up in New York, far, far away from there. Um, I met some people from the school uh, when I was in like seventh grade or something. And I uh, just felt led to, to follow that path and go down there and meet those people. Um, they had an outstanding music program as well. So that was a, a big plus for me. And I, I got a great musical training there. Lots of really good teachers and good experiences and a lot to be thankful for. Yeah. So speaking of teachers, I know on your website, you, you credit Francis McLaren and Joanne Snyder as early music influences and piano teachers in your life. Uh, so this was up in New York, right? Yeah. Um, I recently added those because I've just felt like it's so important to talk about your influences and credit where credit's due and uh, thankful for people who have passed the torch and given what they had. And I guess maybe it's as I start to do more of the same, <laughs> I recognize like, how important that is. <laughs> Um, yeah, so those those two names aren't uh, necessarily names that people around the world would know, but um, Joanne Snyder was my first piano teacher and, and my elementary school music teacher as well. Um, she was an amazing piano teacher because she really just taught music and musicianship. I had to practice every piece three ways, singing the words and singing the letter names and counting out loud. And I couldn't pass even like the, the easiest pieces in my method books <laughs> until I had done them all three ways. I look back on that now and I'm like, I don't think most teachers were doing that. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing. And then Francis McLaren was my high school piano teacher. Um, it was small, rural, uh, upstate New York, but she was uh, really beyond <laughs> the scope of what kind of teacher I should have been able to expect in a place like Elmira. She was just a fantastic educator and musician and pushed me in a lot of really good ways. And, I would leave some lessons frustrated because she wouldn't settle for second best. You know, it yeah. had to be right. And I'm really thankful for that now. So, so Joanne has passed on, but Francis is, is still alive. I still stay in touch with her a bit. That's awesome. Can you trace any, any current influence in your work to the groundwork that they laid? Yeah, that's an interesting question that I don't know that I've been asked before. Um, I'm not sure that I could trace it directly. No, I mean, there, there are probably things there. Um, I, I think of them as more just laying foundation for musicianship and um, awareness and listening and um, steady tempo from my, my high school teacher. <laughs> she was a metronome stickler. Uh, attention to phrasing and dynamics and that sort of thing. It's just foundational, undergirds all that other stuff. That's great. So one more question about influence. I, I know you also mentioned that you were influenced by Alice Parker. So I'm interested in, in this connection that you had with her. When did you meet her and, and what, what lessons did you learn from her? Yeah, much more direct influence there on my choral composing. <laughs> That's an easier one to answer. Um, I first met Alice Parker in 2003 uh, when my composition teacher at the time, Joan Pinkston, um, she had studied with Alice before, and she wanted to go do another session with her. At that time, Alice was offering uh, workshops from her home for groups of six to eight um, aspiring choral composers. So, yeah, my, my teacher and I uh, flew up to 
who flew into Connecticut and then drove up into the, the mountains of Massachusetts where she lives. And um, I didn't know what to expect from this great guru of, <laughs> of uh, choral composing. And I think I expected a lot of just <laughs> probably like over romanticized sumptuous choral textures and cool chords and rich piano accompaniments. And I just probably just projected myself onto her. <laughs> and then I got there and we hardly touched the piano for the entire workshop. And um, it was not about chords or harmony at all. It was 100% about melody. And for about 30 minutes, I was like, what did I get into here? This isn't what I expected. And very quickly, my I think my eyes just kind of grew wide. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I started just understanding things that I'd been lacking so much. I think I was really a pianist at heart until I studied with Alice. And Alice helped me start looking at melody on its own as a sufficient ent entity. And um, her, her line about asking lines where they want to go and the primacy of melody and the importance of line working against line as opposed to just being a part of a chord the whole time. She helped me to just see music in a linear way mm -hmm. instead of just my pianistic stacking up notes for harmonies. Um, that, that's the single biggest thing. And then there's probably 20 other things um, or maybe 200 other things. I don't know. I just count Alice as such a dear friend and such an important influence um, for her work with melody. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a fabulous book all about, melody and, and how to construct that it, she's fantastic so when in your life did you realize that writing music was not only something you were good at but something you wanted to pursue as a career it was a slow process it wasn't a, a moment of epiphany um, i've juggled at various times in my life am i a, a pianist or piano teacher am i a piano teacher or a theory teacher Am I a theory teacher or a composer? Um, which of these is the main thing and which of these is the side thing? What kind of, which, what should I get my terminal degree in? All that kind of stuff. But somewhere along the way, uh, the, the path just became more clear. So I guess like in 2001 was my first published choral piece. Um, and I, from there it started expanding and uh, I, I made more of a living. Um, business-wise, it became more more feasible. Um, in the early 2000s, I think, is when I just started finding more joy musically in writing choral music and working with choirs than necessarily just living in the choral world that I had been in. And then, like, in the 2005 to 2010, somewhere in there, I was really into um, composition pedagogy and music theory pedagogy. I um, was teaching full-time as head of my department. Um, and was really passionate about doing those things well, but just discovered that I couldn't do all of that at full throttle. Something had to give all the time, and I just felt like I, I wasn't able to achieve maximum potential. Um, in 2011 is when Craig Courtney offered me a job working alongside him at Beckenhorst Press mm -hmm. as an editor. And that's kind of what filled in the missing gaps. Like, okay, if I do that part-time, that kind of makes up for the like financially um, not not teaching full-time and then it would leave me more time to compose too and I really think that's where my gifting uh, over, overlaps with the world's greatest need perhaps you know where what do I have that I could most offer the world and it just felt more important to lean towards composing so somewhere along that way from 2001 <laughs> to 2012 <laughs> so I, I stopped teaching in 2012 on a Saturday and then uh, literally Monday morning two days later started work on my requiem oh wow and I don't, I, I truly think I would not have been able to write that work uh, if I had still been teaching. I just mm -hmm. needed to clear my mind and get the mental space available to process something like that. And I've Absolutely. been making composition my f main thing ever since then and loving it. What was that first piece in 2001? First published piece was um, an arrangement of the old evening hymn, Son of My Soul. Uh, it was a hymn that we sang at the church I was attending at the time periodically, and I just wanted to do something with it for choir. So I wrote a little piano counter melody and sent it to Craig Courtney, and he accepted it. Um, I certainly don't look back at it as like a great representative work <laughs> anymore, <laughs> but um, he saw good potential in it and, and in me, I think, and uh, went with it. That's great. Was there a piece that you think sort of gave you name recognition among choirs that sold really well and you you thought oh now i'm established yeah um 
it's easier to, to point to a piece that uh, did better sales-wise and got out there more than it is to claim now I'm established. <laughs> I think every composer, if they're honest, wonders whether they're ever established. Right. But um, yeah, maybe uh, the first Noel, mm-hmm. I don't know what that was, probably 2007, something like that. Um, that was, I, yeah, maybe 2008 or nine. might have been a little later than that. It wasn't a commission. It wasn't written for any particular need or choir. I just had some ideas, and I, I worked on that piece in the mornings before my piano students came <laughs> and uh, sent it in, and Craig really liked it and put it in print, and then everybody wanted to sing it. Um, yeah, we're, I'm working on it right now with my choir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad it keeps going. Yeah, I don't, as I look back on it, I don't, I couldn't put my finger on why it's, everybody wants to do that particular piece. You know, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily my strongest craftsmanship or my most brilliant little piano idea or, you know, mm-hmm. but something about it just comes together and I'm really glad. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it. I have to be careful with people who want to commission me to write another one of those. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of commission requests come with, oh, can you write us a piece like First Noel? <laughs> the answer is, uh, written that piece you can perform it anytime you want if you want a different piece we may be able to talk yeah so was there anyone in your life that ever told you hey making a living as a composer is going to be hard maybe you shouldn't do it that's a good question i don't know that anybody's really ever discouraged me from composing i think maybe for me the tension was more between the academic side Mm -hmm. like doing a a terminal a, a doctorate at the University of Kansas, an academic environment, which by nature is more music for professionals than music for you know community choirs or um, whatever you know volunteer type situations, um, I felt more tension along those lines, maybe between the academic world and the very usable choral music world, than to compose or not. Uh-huh. I didn't really start composing full time until it, it was already working well for me, right? You know, commercially. So I, I'm, I'm blessed in that I didn't really have a period of, uh-oh, can I put food on the table? I've always had backup things, you know, teaching yeah. or uh, working for Beckenhorst, editing, that kind of thing. So. so when people meet you for the first time and find out you're a composer, what's, what's the first thing that they ask you? What, what questions do you get the most? <laughs> yeah, I usually, um, they're like, would you have written something that I know? Like, would I have heard your music somewhere? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm sort of maybe famous in this really small niche world of choirs. And that's about it. So it's not like I get stopped when I'm walking down the street or uh, going to Walmart <laughs> to buy groceries yeah. or something. Uh, it's not like that. But I usually just try to explain what I do with choirs and orchestras and um they, they, I think they often just walk away kind of puzzled. <laughs> like, <laughs> how does he make a living at that? So, so maybe I'm puzzled sometimes. So what question do you wish people would ask you? Um, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. I, I'm usually so busy answering whatever they, they throw at me that I, I don't maybe have the luxury of, of yeah. choosing what they should ask me. Like if, um, if someone could ask you anything about your your process or your style or or if they wanted to really know something about your composing, what would you want them to ask you? Hmm. Well, it, just the other day, maybe, maybe this is a decent answer. I was in a, a Zoom meeting with a choir and a guy asked me my thoughts on originality <laughs> and whether I try to write a new piece every time I sit down to write, or whether I have to come up with a brand new idea that's never been done or how I wrestle with like trying to find something new and maybe there really isn't anything new and that sort of thing. It was a really insightful question. Um, it, it opened up some good discussion. Uh, he was an architect, by the way. So he, he thinks in terms of creating a new building, <laughs> the yeah. same way that I think in terms of creating a new musical work. Um, it's a really critical question with um, pitfalls on both sides. The pitfall on the one side is that if you listen too much to one composer or one style or something, then you, you risk getting hit with a lawsuit or um, you just get hit with, uh, oh, well, yeah, so-and-so, he's just a fill-in-the-blank knockoff. You know, or he sounds like so-and-so. You know, so to avoid that, I actually kind of don't listen to lots and lots of choral music. I listen to other genres, just try to stay somewhat detached from what other people are doing around me chorally. So that hopefully I'm bringing my own influences to the table. Yeah. Uh, 
rather than, than just doing what everybody else is doing. Um, the pitfall on the opposite side of that is that you, um, well, I don't know, there's several pitfalls. You have to be careful not to self-plagiarize. You know, some it's, it's too easy to, to just find a, something that works and then just do it five times or, or wait a few years and recycle it, you know, right. <laughs> and pull it back and um, write the same piece again, especially in, in the church world, I think, because of the cyclical nature of the church year. Um, it, we need the same sorts of pieces each year with the same topics and the same feelings that we associate with those times of year or whatever. It becomes easy to just recycle and then the market bears it sometimes where, you know, I'll just, I'll write another E minor Palm Sunday piece with a tambourine <laughs> and boom check accompaniment, you know, and, uh, oh yeah, we'll do that again this year. And, you know, there's, a, for me, I, I really want to try to, to write a, a piece that is based on a new idea each time, not, mm -hmm. not something. And, and maybe something that really feels like it was pulled out of the text that I'm setting, not that it was forced onto the text that I'm setting. So I, I wrestle with that a lot, trying to reject ideas before I commit to them that, that wouldn't be truly original. But there, there is an opposite extreme, especially in the academic side of things, um, where everybody's trying to do something new, you know, and be groundbreaking, because that's more the nature of, of academic work and um, trying to do research, you know, more on the cutting edge of our field. Um, and that's where the boundaries are pressed a little bit and other people can follow along where people have kind of opened doors. Um, so there's some of that in me in, in terms of my academic background, but at the same time, it's so hard to do anything that's really truly new without necessarily, you know, you could write a piece for, <laughs> as my friend and I used to say in grad school, a new piece for shop vac, duct tape and cornflakes <laughs> and say, oh, here's my original instrumentation. You know, but uh, what kind of musical gestures are you going to get out of that? Uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced, you know, that's a challenge for sure. So um, I had a, a professor in grad school who encouraged me not to try to be brand new, but to try to be timely. Hmm. And I thought that was a really good distinction in that it's just kind of freeing from trying to, oh, somebody's done something sort of like this, so I can't do that. You know, that quickly becomes a dead end. But rather, I think a, a healthier approach is to pull in all the, the influences that speak to you and that might resonate deeply with you. Um, simmer those a while until the soup that you're making takes on its own flavor and the individual ingredients aren't so clear anymore. And that takes work and it takes time and patience and um, perseverance. But I think eventually, hopefully, that you've created something that takes on a flavor of its own. And then uh, it may not be brand new, but it at least speaks in a way that's timely. Yeah. I like that. I like those kinds of thoughts. I think they're yeah. free. That's a really good distinction. So I don't know how philosophical you wanted to get, but there you go. <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. That was fantastic. All right. So what is something that someone wouldn't know from reading your online bio or reading your Wikipedia page? Which by the way, I have to say is really cool that you have a Wikipedia page. I I don't know if I've ever talked to someone in person that has one. Uh do you have any <laughs> hobbies hidden skills um yeah if i have to play the games were like three things about me that nobody would know uh one is that i'm left-handed which seems to be really common in lots of our musical world um two i'm half czech slash polish kind of oh, really my mom's whole side of the family um my my great grandparents all emigrated um from that area the borders change and the names of the states change so on the census forms one time they say hungary the next time they say hungary austria the next time they say czechoslovakia but it's it's basically polish and, and czech mm -hmm. um and I, I love that heritage i claim it every chance i get and um lastly i really love gardening in terms of like landscaping and, and hardscaping and uh, planting things and helping things grow and my happy place, as my wife calls it, is just out uh, somewhere, probably a dirty, sweaty mess with a lot of dirt under my fingernails. And I usually come back in the next day and write better music for having been out there for a few hours, <laughs> having yeah. just done more mindless activity with immediate results instead of heavily mental activity with delayed results. It, it really balances things out for me. Sure, sure. So if you could go back 20 years and visit yourself in 2000, what advice would you give yourself if you could keep the knowledge that you have right now? I think I would give myself the same advice that I usually give to uh, aspiring music students, you know, college students are always saying like, what do you want us to know? What do we need to know now? Or if you could talk to your college self, I mean, that's what it would be. It would be my, my undergrad or early 
mm-hmm. master's self. Um, I think at the time I viewed certain musical endeavors as more valuable than others, maybe more directly related or more practical. And then others I just kind of suffered through and like, you know, okay, I'll get through this such as this conducting class or this music history class or this ensemble requirement, or whatever. And I'd, there were certain things that just felt really important and certain things that didn't. Whereas now I really think that all of those musical activities are so important and they, mm-hmm. they feed this, I almost picture it like this glowing orb <laughs> within each person of musicianship. And there's all these facets and sides to it, but they're all interrelated and connected and they all feed each other. And you're, I think the best composers are the best musicians. And the best thing you can do to increase your, your compositional skill is to increase any aspect of your musicianship that you can. And all of those classes and experiences and opportunities that I just mentioned, and, and a million more, are all um, related to musicianship. So I, I think we can, speaking as for composers, I think we can be the best composers by being uh, as equipped as possible in all of those other areas. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you have to, to excel in them or shine in them. I'm a terrible conductor. I just stay off the podium. <laughs> I, I leave it to people who, who are really skilled at that and can evoke much better sound than I can. I can stand on the podium and, and show you how I feel about the music and beat time. But I'm not going to evoke the best possible interpretation of my own music. That's better left in somebody else's hands who's really gifted at that. So I just admit that freely, and the music making is better for it. But I write music better for the conducting courses that I took, or for the music history that I understand, or for the ensemble experiences that I have, or for whatever acoustics knowledge I have, or um, you know any of that stuff. It's just, it's too easy for people to compartmentalize, I think, and look for, oh, what am I going to do with this? And the, that's not the right question. The question is, what is this going to do to me as a musician? I, I think we're, we're richer and deeper and broader and better connected musicians for all of those things. And then that makes you a better composer. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll share that advice with my son as he starts his musical training. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, well, we'll take a short break and then dip into some of dance compositions. Welcome back. My guest today is Dan Forrest. So I'd like to begin with Shalom for SATB Choir, Piano, and Violin. So I love the text that you used for this piece. So peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do not be afraid, with the Hebrew word Shalom as the refrain. So this originated as a biblical text, and I know that your faith is important to you. Were you thinking this, of this as a sacred or a secular piece? Yeah, I, I purposely get rid of those lines in my thinking. I, I try not to think, oh, is this sacred or not? I try to set texts that are true and good and beautiful and, and let them go where they need to go. Um, and so <laughs> to stop evading your question, <laughs> um, I, I do think of it as a bit more of a sacred piece. Um, but it's the kind of piece that I think can speak in a, in a secular environment too. And, um, I have people that I run that kind of thing by like, Hey, would you do this with your high school choir? Um, and I've gotten really good responses from people on those lines. So I hope it's equally usable. Yeah. Was this a, a commission that you were working on? This was not originally. No. Um, I, I lined it up with some people that were just waiting for a piece of some sort from me. And I, once I started it, I pitched the idea to them and they really liked it, but um, when this whole pandemic first hit, I, uh, my, my schedule was wiped clean <laughs> for traveling and even some of my commissions I lost and some of the commissions that were related to overseas festivals. And I mean, everything was just wiped out. I had been planning to take a sabbatical of sorts in 2021, just to step back a little bit, um, at least for part of the year or something. So I just bumped that up basically. And um, I just stopped writing music for a while, which I needed to do. I needed a, a rest from all that. And, and from the schedule of trying to make deadlines and all that kind of thing. Um, it, as you remember early on, the pandemic didn't seem like it was gonna be lasting too long. Right. We thought it'd be like a month or two. So I thought, well, yeah, I'll just take a little time off and then I'll get right back at it. And then it stretched out for two, three, four months. And uh, by that point, we were saying, all right, we're going to have to do something to try to keep music alive and keep income flowing for composers <laughs> and for sheet music publishers. And, um, it, it, I find it difficult to write music when there's so much going on in the world like that. I, I, 
I think it's easiest for me to write music when everything is where it's supposed to be and at a status quo and there's, there's less distraction in the world that way. And then I'm kind of free to just go off into my own space and, and set a text. Um, with everything that was going on, I found it really difficult to just come sit down and, and set some whatever kind of text was next in my commission schedule. You know, I really wanted to write something that, that said what I needed to say and maybe even more what I needed to hear and maybe what all of us needed to hear. So those words resonated deeply with me. Christ's words about peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And the, the Hebrew concept of shalom is so much broader than just a shallow um, like peace bro kind mm -hmm. of thing or um, you know hey I hope everything's going all right you know the, that concept of shalom is wholeness and a lack of fragmentation and compartmentalization and being scattered or divided um, but it's the, the all aspects of of life are flourishing and coming together um, physically mentally emotionally spiritually that the whole person is is prospering and thriving um, as best I'm told, anyway, <laughs> that's that's the Jewish concept of shalom. Um, and nothing could better capture what I felt like we needed in this year of doom, it seems, yeah. 2020, you know. Um, so I, I wanted that word in there. I, I wanted the, the word that um, was more closely related to what Christ would have spoken in, in Israel there and, and what Jewish people would have um, been wishing to each other. Um, in the context of, of when those words were spoken. So um, it just, it seemed very important to say something like that. I, I spent quite a while just looking for the right idea. Um, it's, it's kind of a simple sounding melody. It's a very limited range. Um, it's not hugely difficult. Um, texturally, there's not a bunch of divisi or anything. But for me, often those pieces are the hardest to write. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's way easier to write a big, difficult thing with no limits than it is to just pare down to the most essential notes. Or even at the piano, you know, it's easier to just plaster all these notes on the page than it is to just pare it back to the, the, the minimum and the essentials. Um, and that's a little bit of Alice Parker speaking there too, right? <laughs> like, let's just write four beautiful lines rather than writing eight part to BZ the whole way and being chords, chords, chords all the time. So eventually um, those melodic ideas started, started coming out and I found some, some patterns and some textures at the piano that seemed to just be very simple and almost understated, but calmly state the, the concepts that were said there. And then uh, last thing is the, the texture of the work kind of alternates between um, thicker in, uh, contrapuntal textures, polyphonic writing, uh, where voices imitate each other a bit and kind of dance around each other and weave in and out. And then just very simple statements of the word peace and the word shalom, just on unison notes, um, whether for half the voices or for all the voices. Um, and I'd like to think of that as sort of picturing the, the wholeness aspect of shalom that we talked about. There's these, all these different strands of our lives that are, that are um, unfurling and weaving out. And we're trying to figure out how they all fit together and sometimes we wonder if they actually are all working together for good or whether things are just completely falling apart. Um, so in those, those polyphonic sections, I'd like to think that there's some comfort in hearing that all these things that seem independent are actually weaving together and working together in harmony and, and coming together in wholeness. And then uh, when we get to the end of each refrain, it comes all the way back to just that simple unison F uh, for Shalom. I'd like to think that that represents orally for us, the, that concept of unity, that all of this is whole and all of this has come together as one, and that all is well and all is truly finding shalom. Yeah. Let's take a moment and we'll listen to a bit of shalom.
just one more thought before we move on from this piece. So I I was having a pretty awful week last week when I sat down to listen to this piece and it was so calming. I loved the repetition of Shalom and I really needed that piece in my own life. So I thank you for that. It was it was just what I needed at that time. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. We all need that. All right. So next, let's turn to a very recent piece, Fermata. Uh, this is two canons for up to five parts for SATB or SSAA choir. Uh, so this piece was written in response to the global pandemic with choirs having to abandon rehearsals and performances. Uh, can you tell us more about how this piece came about? Yeah, this is an unusual one. I had an email from a choir, uh, a choir director in the Northeast who had been rehearsing my requiem, preparing for an upcoming performance. And um, I think pretty close to their dress rehearsal is when the shutdown happened and everything was locked down, everything was canceled. We discovered that the choirs that we normally rely on for life were suddenly hazardous to our lives <laughs> and had to stop all those things. And one of her choir members um, is a bit of an amateur poet and put together some lines um, that, that were entitled Fermata. I, I think that was his title. Yeah, it was called Requiem for the Living, colon, Fermata, um, because it was a pause in their rehearsals. Uh -huh. And he wrote a, more text than I set in this. Um, I'm kind of a sucker for smaller amounts of text. Sure. <laughs> but I, I pulled out the lines that, that worked best for me. And this is what showed up in my inbox to my great delight. Where did the long pause begin? our hopeful notes abandoned and disturbed air. When we return, where will we start? I cannot find the measure where we went silent, but the notes know where they are, suspended above in a holding pattern, waiting for a trusted hand to guide us into the downbeat. Man, what a set of lines for this year. Yeah. So after Shalom, this was the second piece that I wrote <laughs> in 2020. Um, I love that concept that what we are enduring in this year as, as choral people is a fermata and not a final bar line. It's not an ending of singing. It's a, maybe you could say a sigera, I don't know. Um, we, we don't know where the measure is exactly where we went silent, but the notes know where they are, suspended and waiting for us to come back. And waiting, I love that concept at the line. It's a beautiful picture of a conductor, right? Waiting for a trusted hand to wave us into the downbeat. Yeah, you can picture the world just sort of sitting there waiting for the for the next thing to happen. Yeah, it, it feels so comforting and assuring to picture it that way. Yeah. Instead of like the notes are lost and we have to go out and find them. No, the notes are, are out there. They know where they are and they're waiting to for us to come back. Like they will be found. They will find us when the time is right. So I wanted to write a setting that could um, just be flexible with this in 2020. That's kind of the name of the game. We have choirs mm -hmm. virtually and distanced choirs and small choirs and split up choirs and who knows what. Um, I've also been long fascinated with um, the possibilities of counterpoint, maybe the brainier academic side of me. Um, I like those compositional challenges, even though I don't normally write pieces for choirs along those lines. It just kind of supports what I do in other textures. But in this case, um, I decided to write a canon. Um, and I spent most of the summer <laughs> of 2020 <laughs> fiddling with the notes of my melody. Uh, it's one of the greatest compositional challenges I think you can set for yourself is to write a canon, write a melody that accompanies itself in two, three, four. This is five part canon and getting all those things to line up with each other and not overlap too much, not duplicate each other too much. Um, not compete with each other, to leave room for other voices to come in. There's a million um, things that can go wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it was kind of a pastime of mine when I wasn't gardening this summer um, to, to try to solve that compositional challenge. The, the other big challenge with this is to make it sound 21st century. It's, it's not very difficult to write a canon that sounds like it was from the 19th century. You can just right. kind of stack up your thirds and write your, your functional tonal harmonies. And, you know, it, it, but like we talked about earlier with originality, you know, trying to find something that felt timely for the 21st century that could stand on its own, not require accompaniment, could be sung just by a, a small handful of people or a larger choir. I really enjoyed that challenge. When I was listening to it, you know, I, I saw the, this is a canon, and then I started listening and I heard the melody and I thought, 
this melody doesn't sound like it's going to work as a canon, but then it, it all, it all worked together and it was beautiful. Yeah, that's great. That's kind of the goal is to write a melody that feels like it was just going to be a, a solo line sung in an empty cathedral somewhere. And then surprise, like yeah, it actually can fit together. You know, it's a challenge for sure. Um, but I, Mike Murphy uh, in, in, uh, in Southwest did the recording for me that, that's out there right now. Mm-hmm. To me. And um, oh, just a, a beautiful rendition that he gave me, even during all this pandemic. And his choir had to learn it and sing it distanced and with masks and all that stuff. But um, they managed to make some really beautiful music out of it. So it turned into two canons, um, the kind mm-hmm. of two halves of text that I wrote. Um, it just got to be too unwieldy to try to write it all as one melody. So it, it states its first melody and then accompanies itself, all five parts unfold, and then it settles down again. And then we start a new kind of seamlessly with the second melody and then that becomes canonically treated as well. So um, because this was such a crazy year and a weird situation to be writing it in and kind of an unusual piece, you know, from a, from a publishing perspective, it's a little unusual to write an eight minute piece for choirs with four minutes each for each canon that basically fits on two pages. <laughs> it's just a melody, that's all it is. So with all that considered, I thought, why don't, why don't I just share this, you know, just put it out there and we could all use some, some goodwill and some encouragement, and some hope, and all our budgets are getting splashed and all that kind of thing. So um, yeah, I just put it out there just to share with people and um, let them use it if they wanted to. And you can give a little money towards it, kind of name your own price sort of thing, but most people just use it and enjoy it for free. And I'm, I'm happy for that. It's been really neat to see it get out there. Um, I've had people in numerous foreign countries who have used it with choirs. And um, I, I'm looking forward to more recordings coming out. It's a challenge right now right. with distancing and, and masks and whatever. I've gotten some really encouraging feedback from a lot of places um, of, of people making making music out of it with a text that feels so timely right now. Yeah. And then with our ACDA committee, um, we've encouraged a lot of other composers to do the same thing. Um, and some other composers, wasn't original to me. I think there were a few others who were having similar ideas and who were already giving away music. So we kind of pulled all that together and we've had an ongoing series of, of choral composers sharing new pieces with ACDA members. Just, they can just have, like, here, use this at this time. And it's a win-win, you know, composers get some exposure from it. Not that that's worthwhile pay and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, especially during 2020, it's felt like a good thing. Right. All right, so let's take a moment and we will listen to Fermata.
right, so the last piece of yours I'd like to ask about today is the Breath of Life. A four-movement work for chorus, string orchestra, percussion, piano, and organ or MIDI electronics. So as it states on your website, this is a reflection on the beauty of life juxtaposed with the pain of loss. So I loved this recurring idea of breath that comes up over and over in this piece, especially the journey from our first breath of life to our last breath before death and love, which sort of binds all that together. So would you take us on part of your emotional journey as you were writing this piece? Yeah, um, there's so much to be said about it. And it's so weird talking about a piece that's only been performed once. <laughs> I've, I've talked about this piece for much longer than I've actually heard it performed. Um, it was premiered last October, and I had planned to put it in print publicly uh, this spring of 2020. Um, and that just got delayed because everything shut down. I did end up releasing the print music um, late summer of this year, so it is out there now. And the recording is out there. It's on YouTube and it's on you know, Spotify and iTunes and things. Um, so people can hear it, but it just has so few performances. Um, normally my little spiel about these major works gets refined over time as I attend performances and introduce it to audiences. And <laughs> it still feels weird to talk about this. It feels <laughs> like I'm talking about my baby that hasn't really been born yet or something. But, so yeah, this was written for uh, the Belcanto Company um, in Greensboro, North Carolina. They were open as far as text. They didn't have a specific um, theme or subject matter that they wanted, but I was feeling um, particularly moved by concepts of time and um, the, the limited amount of, of life that we have here on earth and how the, the time span of that life is precious. And breath just became a recurring metaphor that I was finding in the poetry that I was looking for. So I, I, as I normally do, I found many, many more texts than I could actually use in, a, in this work, but I settled on four movements um, that represent um, what I think is kind of a life cycle, so to speak, um, of the origins of life, of birth. Um, then there's kind of a quick pivot towards the opposite end of, of our lives, towards death, um, a almost a, a despondency that, that we can be tempted toward as we think about the, the brevity of life and how you know being life being a vapor like a breath that just disappears in the wind um but yet like you you already alluded to the love that makes all of that worthwhile and like if i can fill that that span of time from first breath to last breath with love then that limited amount of time accomplishes what it needed to do and becomes so worthwhile so uh, the first movement is um, from Genesis 2. It's in Latin. Um, and the translation is, God breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That is the longest movement, and it, it works from kind of, the, I don't even know what to say. It's, there, there's, it's before humanity. You know? So there's just kind of this murky introduction with a lot of potential, but not um, any kind of rhythmic vitality or joy or life in it. And then gradually we, we hear God breathe the breath of life in and humanity becomes alive. And then you can just see and hear humanity flourishing and, and prospering and finding all this joy of living in this beautiful world. Um, that movement especially, although it happens throughout the work, um, explores the sound of a human breath as an artistic gesture. Mm -hmm. too. So that, I mean, singers are always breathing, of course. Um, but it's normally just to get more air so we can sing our next line. And this, I tried to take something that's constantly happening for singers and make it an artistic gesture of its own um, so that we hear those breaths in and out, the inhale and the exhale. And then the music itself um, kind of breathes like that. It inhales for, for a couple bars and then exhales for a couple mm -hmm. bars through regular recurring phrases that happen that way. Um, and it's scored, um, I almost think of the choir as part of the orchestra, especially in that first movement. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's one ensemble and everybody's an equal player. So there's a string orchestra and there's a solo cello that can use electronics. Um, there's a piano part, which enables me to actually collaborate with the musicians on stage. Um, my other major works don't have piano, so I'm always in the audience. This is one where I'm like, yeah, if I'm there, I wanna play. <laughs> you know? I wanna be making this music. Um, and then I included an, a part for electronics as well. I tried to keep it as accessible as possible with software patches and, and equipment that's as easy to get as possible. And I made the, um, the software patch available as a free download 
So if you're performing the work, you can just download that and use it. And I did a little bit of sound design in that um, to mm -hmm. create a sound that is specifically created for this work. Um, so it adds a, a, another layer of texture, and almost helps pull this into more of like a studio production kind of sound, even though it's being performed live. Yeah. Um, instead of just being limited to acoustic instruments. Which sound was that that you created for this? Um, well, it's it's in Apple Logic. Um, it's in one of the fancier synth um, software synths that comes in Apple Logic. Um, and I found some sounds in there that were close to what I wanted, and then I tweaked them in terms of the you know the EQ and the attack rate and the decay, and added reverb to them, and it'll you know stuff like that. So that it's kind of a unique sound that fits just for this. So on my website, it's just called the Breath of Life <laughs> patch. <laughs> but um, you just play it on a, a regular MIDI keyboard controller kind of thing. Um, and the part is written, there's an organ part as well. So the organist can play that MIDI keyboard part as well. So mm -hmm. you can just have one pianist and one organist and that covers all three that need to be played. But you, you can, you'll hear it in the recording. Um, in the first movement, um, in the second, and then in the last movement as well. You don't hear it as much in the third movement, but it, it adds um, kind of some ambiance and some texture um, and kind of fills in some gaps that would otherwise be there acoustically with the, the acoustic ensemble. Yeah. All right. So let's take a, a pause real quick and we will listen to a little bit of movement one, Et Deus Inspiravit, and God Breathed. Uh, and then let's listen to a moment of the third movement, the silent kiss. So one of my favorite moments was the beginning of the fourth movement, the epilogue, with the chiming of the bells. The bells are fascinating as they can evoke 
many different ideas and emotions. We use bells to celebrate, to summon, to grieve. Uh, so you're, you set up lyrics that are that come about time. You know, time is, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the bells are out of time with the voices. So what what were you thinking as you were working on this? Yeah, music is always trying to create orderly patterns through time. You know, we don't we don't stretch our art out over space the way a visual artist does, but it's always stretched out through time. But I'm often uh, a little frustrated, I guess, by or disappointed maybe is a better term by the the way that things we just naturally try to line everything up so much. You know, we, we want clear four bar beats and we want clear four bar phrases and then those combine into 16 bars and everything. I mean, I, I understand we gravitate towards just making sense out of all that and we want that kind of orderly structure to hear. But I love trying to find accessible and doable ways of um, letting sounds just feel like they're happening more naturally. Um, so for me, that happens um, rhythmically in terms of, you know, polyrhythms or um, maybe, you know, stretching out triplets over a couple beats or that kind of thing. Um, and it, it happens in a bigger picture with meter, too, um, where I'll, I, I will just insert a couple extra beats or a bar of 3-4 or something like that. People often ask me, like, why, why all this extra changing meter stuff? Why didn't you just leave it alone? And <laughs> it's because I don't, I don't view the, the, the meter or the... the the rhythm as a jello mold that I should pour my ideas into and make them fit. I view that as a convenient way to try to measure the way that the ideas are supposed to work. So I, I try to let the, the rhythm and the meter serve the purposes of what the music really wants to do. There's Alice Parker again, right? Mm -hmm. Ask that line where it wants to go. For me, it's also ask that line how long it wants, you know? Yeah. And sometimes that means oh, this, this needs two more beats. One beat comes up a little short, three beats takes too long. It, it needs two beats right there. So getting back to time is, um, at the beginning there, I just wanted it to feel like there's random bells torn. And one way to do that is just to write in your score, like play these two notes at random. You know? <laughs> a lot of times that's actually harder for performers to just make something up. And then they're always writing me. If I do something like, here, you just figure it out, make something up. They write me like, well, what do you want exactly? Like uh -huh. how frequently should they ring? So really what I did there is just notated rhythms to sound kind of regular in the distance, but not necessarily in the same tempo as uh, what's going on in the choir. Um, so it, it, it's not anything terribly complicated. It, it's all notated with just uh, dotted quarter notes and tied eighth notes. It's not anything mm -hmm. all that far off. But there are two bells that ring and they're not, they don't feel like they're lining up with each other. There's kind of written out polyrhythms. And then the choir comes in in a meter that feels different than those as well. But hopefully the net result is just that there are bells chiming in the distance. I love what you said about how they can um, communicate so many different things. This work spans everything from wedding, celebration, joy, to a funeral right. procession, and everything in between. Um, so I, I'd like to think that those are just ringing in the distance and then the choir just kind of fades in and floats over top of that.
All right. So I know that in addition to composing, you're also an, an editor for the Brecken Horse concert series. Uh, so you mentioned to me in an email that you're working on a couple pieces that you're really excited about right now. Could you tell us about them? Yeah, uh, Beckenhorst has published church music for a long time. Um, and for many years, especially because of my involvement with concert music, um, we've received submissions of more uh, just secular music or concert music, however you want to label it, um, that's not necessarily aimed at a worship context. And we've dabbled with a few different approaches to that, um, but not anything quite this overt or, or focused. Um, and a lot of times I've just had to return those pieces and say, ah, sorry, this isn't quite what we do. And it kills me because it, for me as a, as a composer, as an editor, it is what I do, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I haven't been able to match that up with that. Uh, so the first two pieces in that series um, are pieces by friends of mine. Uh, one is uh, Measure Me Sky by John Reed. He's actually a former student of mine um, doing beautiful work. He's won um, a whole bunch of contests recently and been recognized with various awards and things. Um, he was in Texas for a while um, doing um, teaching choir in school and uh, now has moved back closer to Greenville where I um, mm -hmm. currently live. Um, and his, he was always a fine composer and then this experience that he has now uh, working with choirs has just honed his craft even more and he's doing great work. So it's a beautiful setting of that that text that's somewhat well-known, uh, Measure Me Sky. This beautiful ethereal lines that just float over top of uh, a triplet accompaniment in the piano. Um, I'm really excited for people to hear that piece. And then um, the second piece, um, which is actually the, the first in the series, is by my friend uh, Marcus L.A. Garrett, uh, African-American composer who's in the Midwest now, um, doing just outstanding work on so many fronts. Um, his name pops up everywhere you go these days for his, his work uh, with music by black composers, whether idiomatic or non-idiomatic. And I don't know how he does, his Zoom schedule I think is five times busier than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's so great that he's able to, to be, be heard and be seen this much. And uh, there's really good things happening. And I'm so thankful for him and his work. And uh, so he wrote a piece for, um, Eastern ACBA, I believe, a couple of years ago um, that was commissioned for their, their regional conference. Um, and we've released it in SATB and SSA versions. And I think he's writing a TTBB version, if I remember correctly now, too. Um, and the, the piece there is called Sing Out My Soul. Um, and it's full of rhythmic vitality and, and energy. Um, we have a, a whole... Uh, educators guide that we've put out on it that makes it usable for uh, in the classrooms, some lesson planning type things, some educational activities um, that, that hopefully just make educators jobs as easy as possible. We have that for both of the pieces um, in this series now. So my goal with this series is to um, be extremely selective. I, I don't want to pad the, the series and try to be all things to all people but I just want a very small number of really top-notch pieces so that when a piece comes out and someone sees that cover, they say, oh, I better better look at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are two great pieces to kick it off with. Fabulous. Well, Dan, if our listeners want to learn more about you, what is your website? Yeah, the website is um, just danforest.com, but make sure you put two R's in Forest. <laughs> if you put one, you get the man running for governor of North Carolina. Right, I was, I was going to say, how'd the race go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get way more mail, both encouraging and hateful. <laughs> that was aimed at him than I wish. So, yeah. <laughs> if you see a picture of me looking pensive down at the keyboard, you've got the right website. <laughs> All right. And uh, do you have, are you on social media as well? Uh, Facebook, Twitter? All yeah, I'm, stuff? I'm very active on Facebook. There's a personal page there that you can follow or a public figure page as well. Well, Dan Forrest, thank you for being on Movable Dough. It's been great to talk with you. Thanks for what you're doing, Steve. It's been my pleasure. My guest today was composer Dr. Dan Forrest. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Dan Forrest, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>